Good evening. I'm Chris Bond, founder of Thinkbox and director of product management at AWS. And I welcome you to reInvent. It's a Monday night here. And I'm excited to have you all here. So let's get started. So I'm going to start with the foundation of rendering. So rendering is defined as to produce or represent by artistic or verbal means. And if you don't understand where rendering comes from, it's basically a way to take an object that you create, whether it's a shoe or a car or a product or a building or a superhero or spaceship, and generate a render for it. And this is a process by which the computer uses math <laughs> to light and shadow the objects in the scene. And this can take time. You know, you can do it in real time on games, but a lot of the rendering that I'm going to be talking about takes many hours. So let's talk about who renders. This is an example of a very simplistic pipeline for a small team to work on rendering something. You have simulation, you have lighting, you have rendering, you have compositing. We've got customers that render for magazines, for websites, for products, for web ads, um, book covers, giant 30,000 pixel billboards of vehicles and cars. For the dash inside the car, the representation of the car, those are renders. We also have, of course, all the feature films that you know and love, and all the TV shows on great channels like Amazon Prime. So when you're rendering, these renders can take a lot of time, as I said earlier. They could take hours. And there's a reason why you want to have a group of machines all collaborate on the render, and we call this a render farm. I'm not really sure how it started as a render farm, but I built my first render farm in 1992 or 93 by building PCs, putting them all together. And the reason is because if a one second of content that you render is 24 frames, and you're doing a five second shot or 30 second commercial, if you take that five seconds and every frame takes an hour, you're talking about 1,200 frames that you have to render, which is five days on one computer. And so the total render time can take an enormous amount of time for all of these different animations and renders. And of course, films now have thousands of shots. I remember the days when a feature film had 60 visual effects shots, and that was a big deal. And now movies are 2,400 shots with every single one being a visual effects shot. So it's just completely changing. So if you look at how a studio, and this could be an architect design studio, and you would replace some of the terminology, but this is a visual effects studio here. If you look at how a visual effects studio might render, this is the workflow. They have the production, they're getting plates, they're ingesting them, they're building models, they're lighting and rendering, they're building effects and compositing. So I've highlighted in blue the stages where there's a significant amount of rendering. There's other rendering in places where they're generating meshes and caches and baking out animation. But these are the places where you're doing the majority of rendering. So I'm just going to take lighting and rendering, this one box. And I'm going to talk about the iterative workflow on a project. So in the real world, when you're working on a project, that step looks like this. So you're going back and forth many, many times. So that thing that takes you, you know, 1,200 hours on one computer, takes you many, many days, is, is getting iterated on. 
Every time the director or the visual effects supervisor, the customer in this case, looks at it, they might have feedback. And so you might have to change the model, you might have to change the animation, you might have to change the light, the texture, the environment. It's a Corvette, now it's a Ferrari. And it just constantly iterates, and this step takes a lot of time. So you have to process this frequently. So if you do this, you know that, and you see it all the time. But at Amazon, we like to have data. So I have some customers that are really great, and they pulled their deadline database, and we got some information from them. So this is a small facility, small studio boutique, that might have 13 to 15 computers on premise and a few artists. And this is a period of 10 days. And I'll see if here if I can figure out the... No. Um, this is a period of 10 days. On the vertical axis is 24 hours of time, and across the bottom are those 10 days of submission. The orange peaks are the renders that the, their personal machines could could handle the amount of time it took, but they could actually get done. But the blue peaks are the time that the entire infrastructure was blocked by a job. And so you can see it peaks to 24 hours, sometimes longer. And that means an artist is waiting that entire period of time. So over 10 days, there's frequently times when their people are waiting 9, 12, 24 hours, and even more than 24 hours, 36 hours. So if we go back, and we look at that processing step, you think like every time you want to make a change, you might wait a day to see the result. So in a small studio, you can see all the time it's not doing anything. So <laughs> it wouldn't really make sense for them to go by 10 times the compute infrastructure for those few peaks, right? So it might make sense for them to look at cloud. But I have a more interesting sample. So I have a studio that's far larger. And so this is their rendering for one day. So again, the blue lines are the peaks. And so over the period of the day, you can see them coming in the morning, finding some problems and submitting jobs. They're going to take a full another day before they see the result. And over the period of the day, it's taking six or nine hours frequently before artists can see their work. And at the end of the day, the artists are sort of uh, have this ingrained process, a social process, I called it, where at the end of the day, the artists would want to iterate more frequently and see what they're going to see the next day. So they kind of hammer the farm. And they submit everything before they go home. It's always about 3 o'clock every day. And you can see that here. You see all the jobs that go in that aren't going to get rendered for you know, 18, 20, 24 hours longer than that. So I took this and I said to myself, OK, what if everything was elastic? What if they used the cloud for all of this? So I took this exact same data. And I did this graph. So on the top, we have the number of instances. And at the bottom, we have the amount of time that people would be spent waiting. So the time at the bottom now goes to two hours, because I wanted to make sure that everything got back within a maximum period of time of two hours. So what I did is, essentially, I gave every frame its own instance. And if that, instance, if that frame was going to take longer than two hours, I subdivided it down. And these are the number of machines that it would take. So what's interesting about this is this day would take about 23,000 instance hours to complete. There's 2,400 submissions from this one studio. And on premise, to contain all of this, to replicate this, they would have to buy 12,000 machines. So the cost on spot for this is less than one of those. 
So to me, it, it's, there's a cost advantage to scale out. But the thing that I try to point out to customers is how does this change the workflow? How does this affect artists, the, the morale? How much better can the art get if they can iterate faster? Imagine if every brushstroke you made, you had to wait four hours before you showed up on the piece of paper, <laughs> right? So I have customers who sort of have this on-prem infrastructure they've invested in and they own it, and, and I'm like, that's fantastic, that's great, you gotta keep using it. But you shouldn't have 30,000 jobs in your queue. And some of our customers do, they have 20, 30,000 jobs. I'm like, you should just add more compute and get things back faster. So if you're gonna have all of these jobs and machines, how do you manage it? Well, you know, this is sort of the, the why. Now I'm gonna talk a bit about the how. So <clears throat> Deadline 10 was released in August of this year. And Deadline is a render manager. And so a render manager manages all of those jobs and tasks. So if you remember, I broke things down by a frame, how long a frame took. This frame is like a portion of a second of animation. Well, those frames are basically tasks, and each job would be a shot, and those would be all part of a project or sequence that you're working on, right? So you have this sort of cascade of elements. And of course, you have all of your slaves, you have all of your jobs tasks, and you have, you know, in our case, your AWS controls. So I'm gonna show you what that might look like. This is the deadline monitor in deadline 10. At the top, you've got your jobs, gives you the status of everyone, you've got your tasks, and you've got your nodes that are doing all the processing, and those could be cloud or on-premise nodes. And on the right, we have this new feature in deadline 10 called the AWS portal. What the AWS portal does is it lets you connect to the cloud and add instances to your local on-prem render farm. So our, our, our concept was, I always wanted to feel like AWS was just backing up a truck, giving you a whole bunch of compute, and then driving away when you were done. And so this is what we're trying to achieve here. And I'm gonna get into more detail on this in a second. So when you're thinking about this render farm, you have kind of a multiple choices, right? You have an on-premise render farm that's sort of the history, the legacy where we came from. You buy machines, you have infrastructure. Or you have a cloud-only one now. So a cloud-only topology, to me, this is kind of where the future is gonna be. You're essentially gonna have a thin client. You're gonna have AppStream partners like Bebop or Teradici that you build yourself. And you're gonna have a desktop in the cloud. And you're gonna have Maya. You're gonna have your simulation tools. And the reason why you're gonna have this is because you don't wanna, you don't wanna be put into a corner and have, your, have to move data or transfer things in the last minute. And you're gonna have your deadline database repository, your render nodes, and all your assets all stored on AWS. I really believe this is where we will go, but that's not today for a lot of customers. And that's not today for a lot of customers because you have an on-premise investment. And so what I'm gonna talk about today and go deep into is the deadline 10 hybrid type topology. And so this is a hybrid cloud. And so the concept is, is you have your on-premise infrastructure. You have your render nodes, your asset file server, your deadline database. And then in deadline 10, there's this new feature called the AWS portal link server, which connects to AWS securely and manages your on-cloud infrastructure. And 
on the AWS side, what you have is the Deadline 10 portal infrastructure, which is automatically built by you, the customer, through the AWS portal by right-clicking and saying, build my infrastructure. And this builds all the elements that you need, the on-cloud database, the metadata storage, all the security structure, so that you can control your infrastructure on the cloud. And then inside of Deadline 10, you just say, hey, I want to start a spot fleet. And you can choose the instance types you want, the operating system that you want, and even the AMI with the software that you want, uh, whether it's one that you build yourselves or one of our defaults. And then you can launch hundreds or thousands of machines. And what's interesting about this is you can build multiple infrastructures. So you can build an infrastructure per region. You can have two infrastructures in one region. You can build infrastructures in any region in the world. So you can take advantage of all of AWS's global scale right from the Deadline 10 AWS portal interface. You can also do multiple spot requests. So you can spin up you know, 100 Windows machines for that 3 Studio Max render, or, or you know, 1,000 Linux machines. They can be different types. You can choose your pools, everything. So you have access to all of the GPU instances, the CPU instances, the memory-optimized instances on AWS. None of that changes all through spot. But what I'm really going to talk about, because I hear about this a lot, is you know, I know you can turn on instances in the cloud, and I know you can render, but assets are tricky. How do I deal with assets? And, and I kind of joke around with people. I'm like, just build everything in the cloud, and then, you, then all your assets are there. But there is another approach, and Deadline 10 ships out of the box with this. So let's dive into how we deal with assets. So in, in the data, what we do is we kind of have a, a multi-pound approach. And I'm going to start with the first, which is basically our pre-cache. So when you're inside your 3D DC, DCC, that's your digital content creation tool, Maya, 3 Studio Max, uh, Houdini, and you want to submit a job, there's a couple approaches that you can take to ensure that your assets are there ready to render. The one that we promote is essentially, the, when the user submits the job, we create an asset list. We do scene introspection at the time of submission. Now, you could pre-submit all of your assets to deadline to synchronize up before you want to render. So an artist could, for example, pre-launch a job that is only moving the assets up and then choose to render later, or it can happen at submission time. If the user submits the job like they normally do. The assets get tagged. So the deadline submitter inside Maya or Max looks for the assets and collects them all, creates a list of those assets, stores those in the job file properties in deadline, and then it checks the deadline cloud link server, that new part of, of deadline 10, part of the AWS portal installation, checks the online database, which is part of the deadline 10 infrastructure we build for you, so those two components talk to each other over an SSH connection and see if the assets are there or not. So we basically say, like, hey, like, have you already rendered the shot previously? And if they aren't there, they'll synchronize those. And it synchronizes those over S3 multi-part MIME transfer. So that gets pushed up to S3. And any assets that are the same that already exist obviously don't move. So the, the more you work, the more you expand to the cloud, theoretically, the faster it gets, because the less you're changing. So once the assets are confirmed they're there, 
then the job can be dequeued. That's what we call it when the job can be picked up and rendered. So the job gets dequeued, and then what we do for performance and scalability, because we don't, we don't want to necessarily force you to build a file, you know, file server, file infrastructure, we actually copy those textures or assets that are required to render the job to an EBS volume attached to each instance. So when you request 100 instances, 100 EBS volumes are created, and S3 pushes that data out to all of them. Then the job starts rendering. So all those assets are now local to each instance. Now, something that I get asked a lot is like, well, you know, what about this crazy plugin I wrote that creates these things? How are you going to support it? Or it's an in-house tool. How are you going to do that? And obviously, like, sometimes, you know, my or Max might not capture every single asset. So we have a safety net. And essentially, <laughs> this is in reverse. So if a machine has a job on the cloud and the asset doesn't exist, it'll queue, it'll, it'll request the file from the deadline 10 infrastructure on the cloud. And if it doesn't exist there, it'll go back over that SSH, SSH, SSH secure connection back to your local infrastructure. And as long as you've mapped where those files are somewhere, and you can have multiple volumes or paths for where your assets are located on your local infrastructure, it will find that and copy it up. So the idea is that as long as it can render on-prem, it'll render on the cloud. Now, the, the only concern with this, of course, is if you spit up 1,000 instances and have 150 terabyte cache that wasn't synchronized, they're all going to be waiting for that asset to move up. But the idea of this is to capture those, and you'll see exactly what's going on. So the interesting thing, of course, is you're not limited to this. The idea of this is that we wanted to create a solution out of the box that just worked. Your, your, your frame would render. You wouldn't have to worry about moving assets. But of course, you have other approaches. You can synchronize things. With, there's tools in the AWS Marketplace, Aspera, Signet, File Catalyst. You can, you can get those, synchronize your data manually. You could use Snowball. If you have you know, a petabyte of, of assets on-prem and you want to just move them to AWS, you use Snowball to move those on. Um, you know, there, there's something to be said for having all of your assets synchronized between cloud and on-prem, so you have choice and you never have to wait if you decide to scale. There's other file systems as well, and we're actually going to, they're listed here. Uh, Cumulo is interesting because our customer, FuseFX, is here, and is going to be talking shortly, uh, uses Cumulo, so they're going to have some feedback. But there's certainly other ways for you to get the data there, and we support that. And that's the kind of the goal, right? It's freedom of choice. You can use the instances you want, software you want. It's in your account. You can control it and file system you want. We try to give you everything you can out of the box, but you have choice. And speaking of software, you know, I've talked about the hardware. I've talked about how you move the data back and forth. But a key part of this, of course, is the software. How are you going to render? So. When we have customers that want to scale out and add 32,000 cores or even just five more machines or 10 more machines, they may not own the licenses to do that. So we partnered with a number of vendors, Autodesk, Foundry, even good friends of ours like Redshift and Yeti, smaller groups, uh, the Next Limit folks with Maxwell and, and, and RealFlow. And we have a per-minute licensing mechanism that we call usage-based licensing. So the ThinkBox marketplace 
you can go purchase bundles of hours of these products and then consume them on AWS on a per minute sample. And you're only charged the amount of time they're actually being used. So if you have an instance that like, is processing something for a period of time and then processes something else, say, for example, a new composite of a V-Ray render, you're only charged for the minutes of each third-party application the deadline supports. We also have default AMIs. So AMIs are the Amazon machine image. And you can, of course, build your own machine image. But again, we wanted to make things easy, so we have a number of defaults. We have Linux with deadline. We have Windows with deadline. We have V-Ray. We have Max. We have Maya. We have more coming all the time. So a number of these partners, we have default AMIs that you can then use the latest software just to test, get up and running. You can install plugins and tools on top of it and make it your own. Or you can use your own AMI that you've created. And finally, we support bring your own license. So we have a mechanism in deadline to be able to manage the license count of your perpetual licenses that you own and share those on the AWS. So if, for example, you have 100 V-Ray licenses, but you have 50 machines on premise, or you want to scale to Amazon and add 200 more, you could use all 100 of those and then use usage-based licensing for the remaining 100. We always prefer perpetual licenses when we're choosing the software license, so you try, we try not to consume uh, licenses from the marketplace first will always consume the perpetual license you own. So that way you have your choice to use software you already own as well as scale and burst with the marketplace. Finally, I'm going to talk about the whole thing that makes this affordable, the boom for your buck, Amazon EC2 Spot. So Amazon EC2 Spot, if you don't know, is spare EC2 capacity Essentially, you bid on it in a region, and you get up to 90% off the on-demand price. Now, there's exciting things coming this week that people are going to be announcing, and I'm going to highlight what those are later on at the end of the presentation so you can go check them out. But essentially, this works really well for rendering. Because a lot of, you know, Deadline has a long history of machines crashing on-prem, artists turning on the, the workstation that was rendering all night, and then we handle those errors really well. So if you bid a low value on spot and the machine gets taken away by someone else who bids a higher value, you know, Deadline can recover from that really well. But essentially, we've got customers who've scaled up to 32,000 cores, I'm, I'm telling Jason's story, uh, without being interrupted. So there's a lot of spare capacity for you guys to use. Um, and on that note, I'm going to introduce Jason Fodder from FuseFX. Now, the best way to do this, he's co-founder and CTO of FuseFX, great deadline customer of ours and customer of AWS. I'm going to introduce him the best way I know how, which is to play his demo reel. So if you just give me a minute, I'm going to uh, swap over here. I will have to log in. All right.
Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for the very nice introduction. My name is Jason Fodder, and I'm the CTO and co-founder of FuseFX, and I'm here today to tell you about how we're using Deadline in the Amazon Cloud to burst render beyond the limits of our physical render farm and to handle the massive amounts of rendering that our clients are demanding and our projects are demanding. Before we get into some of the details, I'll give you a little intro to FuseFX. We focus on television. That's our primary work. We're about 300 employees, and we work on upwards of 70-plus projects on any given time across all of our offices in LA, New York, and Vancouver. On the screen there, you can see some of the few projects that we work on. A little background about the company. In 2008, I joined with Dave Altano and Tim Jacobson, and we set off to create a visual effects company. Why did we create a visual effects company? You know, we, we knew that we could do high-quality visual effects. That's a given. It's something we tell every employee that starts at FuseFX. Creating high-quality visual effects is what you do, but how you do it is important. And we focused very early on on efficiency and infrastructure and design and how to do visual effects in the most efficient way possible. Visual effects is an inherently inefficient process. You saw in Chris's slide the very complicated node structure and the lines going back and forth and the iterative process. It, that's, that is the way it is. So we started by 2010. We were up to about 20 employees and started building our infrastructure, storage, render farm. And we just kept being successful and kept getting more and more projects and doing things in a, what do we got, feedback? Thank you. All right. Technical difficulties happens. So by 2012, we were growing. We were adding buildings. We were in a, a, a building in Burbank, and we filled that building up and expanded to the next building and expanded to the next building on the block and really created a campus-style uh, facility for our employees. In 2014, we decided to open offices in New York and Vancouver, and that, in that moment, one of the major challenges was data synchronization. And Chris talked about synchronizing data to and from the cloud. In 2014, we started to solve internally the problem of synchronizing data between facilities so that if we had an artist in New York who wanted to work on a shot from LA, we could copy all the necessary assets to New York, work on that shot, get it back to LA, and it was just like they were in LA. I'll speak more about how that became the building blocks of our cloud workflow a little bit later. But by 2015, we had filled up our space, and we decided that it was time to move. So we moved to a new facility in 2016 in Los Angeles, 27,000 square feet, room to grow, room to expand, room to take on more projects. But we almost immediately started to feel infrastructure limits. We had more power, we had more cooling, but it still wasn't enough to meet the demands of what our projects were requiring. And so now in present day in 2017, we're looking to the cloud to expand our infrastructure to meet those needs. One thing about television is it's growing and it's changing. You have the OTT providers of Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, and Apple coming onto the scene and creating their own specialized content. You still have the major studios, you still have the major networks, 
And this graph, you know, really shows the growth of TV over the last few years and the number of original scripted TV series that were created each year. And you can see that it's doubled. And what we're seeing is that there's an increase in complexity, in scope, in creativity, and the industry's moving to 4K. And what that means for a company like us is more infrastructure, more storage, more compute, higher, higher speed networking, you know, all of that. An example of this was Ghost Rider. In 2016, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. wrote into their series a reoccurring character, Ghost Rider. For us, this is super exciting. To create Ghost Rider as a character, we created a fully CG car, we created a fully CG skull, that you saw the transition from the actor's face into that skull. And the one thing we focused on was CG fire. You, a couple of years ago, before we did Ghost Rider, CG fire was something that wasn't really attempted in the TV world, because it's complicated. It requires very complex simulations, a lot of rendering, a lot of trial and error before you get it to look, look right. Fluid dynamics, you know, you can't control it like you would a traditional animation. You have to let the computer simulate it. And what we found really quickly is that Ghost Rider in and of itself would consume our local render farm. And that's a problem because we have many other projects going on at the exact same time, and all those other projects need to be rendered. So we looked at ways that we could expand, and we decided to bring in both rental machines and use the cloud. And what we did is I set out to compare the differences. And what are the differences between adding local infrastructure, whether it's a purchase or a rental, versus the cloud? And the key point here is the ability to make quick decisions. In a TV schedule, we have two, maybe three weeks to complete a project. It's not a lot of time. We do it in a very fast pace, and we have to be very efficient with the way that we do it. And with a shot like Ghostwriter or anything, when your render farm gets overloaded and you need to react, if you don't have the machines local and you need to get them in, that's going to take you at least 24 hours, maybe even 48, to get them in, up and running, imaged on your network. And you also have to have the available power and the available AC to cool those machines. We have about the capacity of about 100 uh, beyond what our current uh, infrastructure is right now. But what we found with the cloud was that in a matter of minutes, we could spin up much more than 100 instances. And we could make that decision, be up and running, and then when it was done, turn it off. And it was like it never existed. And the other challenge of renting or purchasing physical machines is determining how long you're going to need them. And you don't really know. You're just reacting on a daily basis to what the needs are of your current render queue or current productions. And then we compare the costs. And I really like this slide because it really shows what is possible so we found this is the usage for the month of April. And you can see how some days we used almost nothing in the cloud. And then some days we used a lot. Our max capacity in this scenario was 400 cloud machines. And with the spot pricing that we were able to get, that monthly cost was about $35,000. Render nodes are expensive. They're high 
you know, profile CPUs, they require a lot of RAM, they're server type infrastructure, they're not cheap computers. So I can rent for that same price about 80 machines and I can purchase about seven. So this is, you know, a really good example of if you get an infrastructure in the cloud that works for you, that you can really take advantage of the large amount of compute capacity that the cloud can provide. So we were pretty excited about this, and it really set us up to be able to handle really large-scale projects. So in the summer, the tick came through our door, and it was clear from the beginning that the tick was going to be a very large show for us. The creators of the show were really excited about writing big-time visual effects into their show, and they really, really, really wanted the tick to be set apart from other shows. I'd like to focus on the last two episodes of the season and, and, and what it took to do it and how we did it. So it was a total of 187 shots. 45 of them were full CG. That means there was no acquisition camera format at all. Every single shot was created fully CG by the artists at Fuse Effects. We were lucky this time because we had six weeks, but it was two episodes in one, so the reality was we were on the same schedule. We maxed out at about 104 total artists on the show, and we were working on that in all of our offices, Los Angeles, New York, and Vancouver. And then the most exciting piece of information on this is 300,000 total frames rendered. And if you think about that over a six-week schedule, that is 7,000 frames in a day and 300 frames in one hour. So every hour for an entire six weeks, you would need to render 300 frames to get this show done. But that's not reality. We're not rendering 300 frames every single hour. We have some hours where there's nothing, and then we have large bursts of you know, a lot of frames needing, needing to be rendered in a short amount of time. And so this is what our usage looked like in August and September of this year. You can see in the beginning of August, we were good. Our on-premise infrastructure was working. It was handling the load. We were just fine. We didn't need to go into the cloud. We own those machines. We love it. You know, we don't get charged extra for rendering on those. But as the project started to get closer to its deadline and iterations needed to happen, you could see that our usage started to spike. And it would spike in bursts, and then it would go back down, and then it would spike in another burst and go back down. What I'd like to focus on is at the very end there, you see that top end bar that bursts just over 9,000 hours. So that's 9,000 usage hours in a single day. There's a story behind why we had to do this. So every night we plan, artists submit jobs to the farm, we sit down and we say, okay, here's our total amount of render, render jobs that we need to complete, how are we gonna do it? Okay, we're gonna offload some to our remote offices, we've got our local farm, that should be able to handle you know, X amount of jobs, okay, now we need to use the cloud. So we had the cloud running that night, and unfortunately, because of some mismatched assignments of pools and groups, we had a lot of machines sit idle that night. That's always a very unfortunate event in our world, but it happens. It's a real-world production. 
So we came in in the morning and our queue was just stacked. There was jobs and jobs and jobs and jobs sitting there that had expected to be done in the morning and were not. And so I had the production teams come in, the producer and supervisor, and their eyes were really big, and they're like, Jason, what are we going to do? And so as we've been developing our cloud infrastructure, I have set a target of 1,000 machines. Because I knew, number one, 1,000 machines sounds cool. It sounds like a lot. But I also knew that there would come a moment where we needed to do that, and we needed to hit that mark for whatever reason. I didn't know what the reason was going to be, but I knew it would come, and this was the time that it came. So I told our render wranglers, I said, if you have a frame, spin up a spot instance, get it rendered, and let's see how fast we can do it. So we were able to burst, and literally we were able to add 1,000 machines to our render farm in a matter of 10 minutes and run like that for five hours to get all of our render jobs done. Started the process about 9 o'clock, so by 2 o'clock we had caught up. Everything moved through the production that needed to happen. Artists got their shots. Compositors got their shots. Stuff could be delivered. Everybody was happy. And so this really was a moment for me that was fun and exciting to, to know that we could do it, but it was also eye-opening because there's no possible way that I could bring a 1,000 machines onto my network and get them installed. I don't have the power to do it, let alone try to do that in 10 minutes. It, it just would be completely impossible unless you had some kind of truck that you could back up. And the reason we were able to do this is because, one, we knew that the Amazon Cloud had the available capacity to do this. And we were able to leverage diversified fleets against spot instances to get the nodes we wanted in a cost-effective solution. That really is something that spot does very well, and Chris mentioned it. It gives you compute power for much less than the on-demand price, and it really makes a lot of sense in the visual effects rendering workflow. We also, the other reason we could do this is because we had a solid workflow. With the remote offices, we knew how to synchronize assets. We knew how to get things to and from where they needed to go, and we've leveraged that for the cloud. And I'll talk a little bit more about how we do that. But it really is the key to making this all work, because if you render in the cloud and you haven't synchronized the right files, you're going to get bad frames. And Artists and producers and supervisors aren't very happy when bad frames come off the farm. And the other key component here is on-demand licensing, as Chris mentioned with the UBL store. You have to be able to also burst your licensing. Rendering is not free. V-Ray, Redshift, all those pieces of great rendering software charge people like us to use their product. So this is how we do it. This is our infrastructure. On-premise, we have an Isilon cluster, 1.2 petabytes of storage. We have a local farm attached to that. Obviously, we have a deadline database and repository. And we have Nucleus at the backbone of our system. Nucleus is our proprietary production platform that we've designed from the ground up since the beginning of FuseFX. It really is the backbone of our company and something that drives all aspects of our business. And we've leveraged it in this studio asset synchronization mechanism. And basically, we know every file needed for every render, and we can get that file to where it needs to go to get that render completed. In the cloud, we run a Cumulo cluster. 
So we run four nodes. Those are M416X larges with EBS back storage. The great thing about Cumulo is Cumulo is a competing product to Isilon, but they're similar in design in that they are clustered storage systems. And so having similar systems on-prem and on the cloud allows us to leverage our workflow in the cloud that much easier. We have a custom AMI that matches our local render farm. Again, that's key. If you've got a wrong plugin or a wrong version of V-Ray or a wrong version of Max and you try to spin up a render, you're going to, again, get a bad frame. And that's just never acceptable in our environment. So we make sure our cloud AMI matches our local, render, our local image on Windows so that when we are transferring renders to the cloud, those spot instances come up that they are going to produce the, the result that we are expecting. And then this is some of the software we use. This is some of the node counts of our on-premise infrastructure. LA, we've got about 500 machines. New York, 125. BC, 115. And I like this terahertz of compute power. Deadline has this nifty little metric in the bottom of the monitor that tells you how large your farm is and how much compute power you have. And it's been fun to see that grow you know, over time since we had 10 nodes and now we're up to you know, five, seven hundred plus. But if you think about that thousand mark and how we were able to expand, we basically tripled that number. So we were approaching a hundred terahertz of compute power in a matter of minutes for a shorter period of time that we could just turn off when we were done. We use Max, Maya, Houdini. We render a lot of our shots in V-Ray. We're also looking at Redshift now with GPU rendering. Like I said, we're based on Windows, Nuke for compositing, Deadline. And again, Nucleus just sits there in the middle and just connects everything together and drives our entire production pipeline. We also have a lot of internal Python developers that leverage custom applications to connect into our Nucleus systems to provide artists with things like shot setup and versioning and uh, access to a shared library of customized elements to bring into their shots. And it really is. The foundation of it is formed in efficiency. How can we do the visual effects process in the most efficient way possible? So I define success in a lot of different ways. And you know, you could talk about cool technology. You can talk about it spinning up 1,000 nodes and 32,000 cores and all this cool stuff, which is really fun and exciting. But success also is in quotes like this from employees. You know, productions and, and the artists that work on, our sh are on shots and producers and supervisors, they, they want to have systems that work for them so that they can do the creative work necessary to put what you see up on the screen. And to me, this was great to hear from Chad. Chad, is, uh, Chad and I have a great rapport in the office. And pre-cloud days, Chad would come into my office. And the moment he walked in, I knew what he was going to tell me. And he would say, Jason, we don't have enough render power. And we'd sit, and we'd develop a plan, and we'd try to figure something out. And he'd say, when are we going to get more nodes? When are we going to get more nodes? And I'm like, oh, Chad, you know, I can get a few more in here, but I'm limited by power and you know, cooling. And you know, we'll, we'll see long term if we want to add more. We'd get through it, and you know, he'd be a little grumpy and you know, come back the next time and say the same thing. But he was a supervisor on the tick, 
and this is what he told me. And really, the key point there is the fact that we could scale up in hours and then iterate every shot in the show overnight was amazing. 187 shots, 45 full CG, create new versions of them in a single night is not something we really ever have been able to do before. And then we also got these, kind of, these quotes from our clients on the tick. And this shows their ability to think creatively and to go after the big ticket visual effects items, visual effects shots, which are exciting for a company like us. But I like the things that talk about not backing away, not backing down, and the shared labor of love. That really is the, what Fuse Effects is about, is, is partnering with our clients and creating amazing visual effects and developing the technology behind it, underneath it, to do those in a very efficient manner. So final thoughts. I think it's pretty clear. We can turn on and off any size workload that we want at any given time. And to me, that's just highly beneficial in our world of visual effects, especially in TV. Another thing that I like to say now is we now have time that we can make it. Time is now a variable. In pre-cloud days when we had a bunch of jobs on the farm, we could calculate, okay, these are gonna be about this many number of render hours. We have this number of nodes. You can do the math and figure out how much time that's going to take. Chris mentioned it before, you know, that might take one hour, that might take one day, it might take five days, it might take a week. You know, who knows? But with the cloud, we can flip that equation around, make time a variable and say how fast or slow can we you know, get this work done? And then what is the capacity that we need to do to get that workload done in that amount of time? The other thing that the cloud provides us is ways to look at efficiency that is different than on-premise infrastructure. One of the things is startup time and load time. We don't really care about that so much. I mean, we care, but it's not, you know, we don't look at it with a fine-tooth comb on our local infrastructure because that time is, you know, not calculated and we're not charged based on the, the usage of that time. But in the cloud, you know, if you could shave a minute, two minutes off your workload for startup time or load time with the software, then you can, you know, you, your, your cost will go down because that'll be that much less time that you have to pay for. And if you think about scales of a thousand or even more machines, that really can add up. And then we're also focused on security. We work on a lot of high profile shows and security is very important in our infrastructure. So we wanna make sure that any infrastructure, any workflow that we create honors those security metrics and, and meets or surpasses those requirements. And then I get really excited when I think about the future and what we might be able to do with the cloud. With the success of rendering in the cloud, it just makes you start thinking about what else can we do? And Amazon offers many, many different services that a company like us can take advantage of. And when we look at our Nucleus platform and how we've leveraged it to be the core of what we do, it just makes sense to look at that and expand that into the cloud and things like workspaces, AppStream, obviously S3, different storage, machine learning. How can we automate business processes along the way and leverage machine learning 
and many, many other services. So it's really exciting, and you, you know, I can't wait to see what we can do with these types of services and, and more. So thank you. That's it. And uh, <laughs> we have a little bit of time.